From Our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church on Bennett Avenue in the Heights of New York City, welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air, where we spotlight the writers, filmmakers, musicians, theater makers, and artists of all varieties who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. I'm Aaron Sims. I'm Jonathan Bell. And this is Live and Local. It's our podcast dedicated to showcasing and celebrating the musicians of Upper Manhattan. We talk about their work and, best of all, hear them do their thing. Who is our guest today, Jonathan? Aaron, today we have composer and cellist Paul Brantley, a five-time McDowell Colony Fellow who has also received fellowships from BAMP Center and the Anderson Center. He has recently enjoyed performances of his music by The Knights, Horshowski Trio, Flux Quartet, and Memphis Symphony. Brantley recently composed a cello concerto, The Royal Revolver, for Eric Jacobson, the Knights. He co-founded the Seal Bay Festival and was artist faculty at Yellow Barn Music Festival. Brantley was a Manhattan School of Music artist faculty from 2000 to 2014. He was invited to give a composition seminar at Yale University in 2012. He is a director and cellist of the newly formed Mercury Chamber Players. A busy guy. We are very fortunate to have him with us today on Live and Local. Please enjoy Paul Brantley. Thank you. 
That was wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Sure. Well, happy to have you here on, on air. What are the names of the pieces you just played, if you would? Yeah, all three of the solo cello pieces that I'm playing today are from this collection of solo cello pieces called Order or Ordre, however you would pronounce it in French. And the first one that you heard was called Malagasy Songs. I kind of found two indigenous tunes from Madagascar and interleaved them and came up with that first piece. And then the second one, kind of fancifully called Le Cocteau, the Cocteau, which is a kind of a portrait of Jean Cocteau, who's a big hero, an old hero of mine. 
And it's given that title because the group of pieces that I mentioned to order is modeled after these 17th century collections by composers like Couperin and Rameau. And instead of them just being a suite of dances, they would be this whole hodgepodge of different kinds of pieces. And most pertinently, portrait pieces. They would like paint musical portraits of other artists that they admire, but primarily composers. Like Rameau even did a, a self-portrait, which he called La Rameau. So anyway, so modeling this collection after Couperin, you know, it kind of gave me the license, the opportunity to do some time traveling and paint some portraits of some of my favorite, in particular, French artists, and so Jean Cocteau being a principal one. So that's why it has the kind of ridiculous title of Le Cocteau, because that's, that's how Couperin would have done it. Could you say something about the first piece, the um, Malagasy, specifically about the time and the meter, if it was a little bit um, bewildering to me in a lovely way? Well, I'm glad it was lovely. And, and that's kind of exactly the appeal. You know, if I can preface that by saying, like, in the last, I don't know, 10 years, it's like classical Indian music, West African music from Mali, and then discovering this music, this indigenous music from Madagascar, there's this rhythmic, you know, what classical composers might refer to as polyrhythmic or polymetric, but it's really not that. You know, I think we've all had that experience when we listen to like Ravi Shankar in the middle of some giant raga or something that we might perceive the pulse, the groove being one thing, and then it starts metamorphosing into something else. And then I think what's incredible about that music is that it, it feels like you're in two, sometimes three or four simultaneous time worlds. Now, I'm not claiming at all that that's what I achieved, but I'm just telling you that that's what inspired me in a lot of my music. And the piece that you're going to hear, the recorded piece in a little while, the Dux Comes, is very much inspired by that world. But back to the Malagasy songs, so there were like two different tunes, like two completely unrelated just folk songs. But to me, it's like how they bounced off of each other suggested that kind of temporal coexistence. You know, it's kind of hard to explain. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the fact that while I was sort of attempting to find strong beats, they'd escape me as soon as I felt it. Yeah. And, and that was nice. Yeah. I really relate to you as a pianist and someone when I'm trying to write piano pieces, how do I circumvent getting trapped into hand positions that I'm just accustomed to and just certain ways of playing chords? How do I get away from writing it the way it feels good? I really related to what you said there. And also, I just wanted to add that personally, some of the most interesting compositional aspirations I've had have come for composing for individual instruments because it's forced me to be more I wish there was a better way to put it more horizontal with harmony. And when I heard your cello pieces, I there's a lot of unavoidable arpeggiation that might otherwise not have been arpeggiated. And somehow that makes things a little bit fascinating. It's less dense often if like writing for a flute or writing for a clarinet, the harmony is more implied. And for that reason alone, it's kind of freed me and I'm wondering if you've had that experience at all, writing for cello as compared to more like a chamber. Yeah, I mean, it's very much related to what I was saying earlier. It's like I have my habits as a cellist performer and as a cellist improviser. 
So by having these literary models, by having these player models in mind, that that helps transcend it. But then I'm the same thing when I'm writing for a new instrument for the first time or a new collection of instruments. I mean, I I love that idea of the composition being as medium-specific as possible. I always think of Charlie Chaplin. His brilliance exists because of it being silent, So his humor, his brilliance works within that frame, within those quote-unquote limitations. What would Charlie Chaplin be with CGI? You You know what I mean? It's like that's the exact opposite. There's no frame. So again, like the recorded piece you're going to hear in a little while, which is for Baroque violin and Baroque cello and harpsichord, that is such a specific medium. But it's just like the nature of the modern grand piano and the modern cello, they can quote unquote do anything in the hands of the right person or people, right? But these early Baroque instruments, it's not like they can't do everything. They don't want to do everything. They have very specific personalities and very specific technical and expressive things that they want to do individually. And then when you put them together, it's even more specific. It's this paradoxical thing. I find that liberating as a composer. Whereas, like, I remember years ago, I rarely discard pieces of mine, but I had received this pretty major commission to write this duo for two cellos. It was performed at the Kennedy Center. And I just, this piece just flew out of me and I just thought it was the best thing in the world and then I was like no it was just like all habit stuff it's like my cello fingers were composing it more than my whole composer itself Paul we're recording this here in the latter months of the COVID-19 pandemic here in 2020 you're among those who had a very serious case of the virus early on you eventually recovered thank the Lord, and return to composing with renewed energy. What was it like going through that? Do you have a renewed invigoration towards composing and playing right now? The last question, you know, absolutely. But the earlier questions are much more difficult to respond to. It did take place at the very beginning of the pandemic when not much was known. And I was a stay-at-home person. I went to the emergency room three times. Unless your lips were turning blue is literally what I was told. I was receiving this extraordinary attention from unphoned doctors and teleconferences and the whole bit. But you were being told at the time, unless you literally cannot breathe and your lips are turning blue, That was their criteria at that point for either staying home or going to the hospital. And indeed, I couldn't breathe for two weeks completely, and then the recovery over the next three months while I was having these episodes. So it it was very, 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 very challenging. Uh, I don't mean to get too heavy here, but it's hard not to talk about now. It's at the very beginning of all of this. So little was known. I was receiving this kind of tenuous help. So you're, you're, you're looking at your mortality constantly. Like, this could spiral out of control, and I go to the hospital, and I'm ventilated, and who knows what will happen at that point. You know, I I mean, it was extraordinarily difficult. And then the recovery period, for the first time in my life, I mean, I've been composing since I was about seven, and for about the first time in my life, for about three months, that went away with everything else. All the other classic things that symptom-wise go away, and... It was a nightmare. It was literally a nightmare. I mean, it was the most difficult thing. I mean, I'm not saying I couldn't. It, like, went away. And who am I without that? And, you know, I'll tell you, um, this friend of mine, who's a wonderful playwright, posted on Facebook this excerpt from 
with four quartets of T.S. Eliot, and it's the excerpt that is Wait Without Hope. I said to my soul, be still, and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild time unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth, It is so beautiful, and it's so perfectly expressed where I was. And, you know, my, my immediate thought, like some flicker of the pilot light as a composer went, I should attempt to set this. But then that was just too overwhelming. So I think another, like, two or three weeks went by, which was like two or three years. But then it was like, yes, I'm going to attempt to make a setting of this. And so I did for soprano and clarinet and piano. I kind of just arbitrarily chose the Shepherd on the Rock trio combination of Schubert. I don't know why, really. It just kind of came to me. And then I chose this Auden poem and then a, a Wallace Stevens poem. So I have like this little song cycle. You know, and that was what, May or June? And I literally have not stopped composing since, which is very rare for me because it used to take a lot of gestation time between pieces and rest and... It's really not compulsive, though. There's just been this incredible need to give expression to all of this. Wow, what a story. Thank you for sharing. And I hope to hear those songs. Me, me too. <laughs> at some point. <laughs> me too. Yeah. So, Paul, can you tell us what else you're going to be playing for us? Yeah. The third piece is, again, another one of these portrait pieces from that same order collection. But instead of it being a portrait of a person, it's a portrait of a place. And again, excuse my poor French, but the Hotel Biron, which in the early 1900s was Rodin's house, which was found for Rodin by Rilke, and I think it was his wife at the time, the, the wonderful sculpture, Clara... Um, Clara Westhoff? West, yes. And so also living there was this actor, Damox, who apparently was really famous at the time. And Isadora Duncan was living there. And Jean Cocteau, who was like 18 at the time, was living there. And this old dilapidated mansion, which is now the Rodin Museum... And the extraordinary thing is I knew about this a number of years ago when I actually visited the Rodin Museum, but I didn't make the connection until I was walking out. They have this plaque on the exiting wall that says this was originally the place of the Hotel Biron where all those people lived. And you could turn around and they point out the window where Rilke was. And there's this famous letter by Cocteau describing that experience where he could see Rilke's candle burning in the window. You know, it's like the young 18-year-old Cocteau was a little bit too shy to meet Rilke at that point. God, I came home from that experience and I kept, it just kind of overwhelmed me, you know, and I and almost like was like having visions and sometimes I think it filtered into my dreams. And this is a number of years ago now, 10 or so years ago maybe. And, you know, once again, felt like I had to give expression to that I first composed it in such a way, and I've never done this any other time, 
where I kind of intentionally left the form of it open-ended. I could go there if I wanted to. I could go there if I wanted to. I could come back to there if I wanted to. And I performed it that way, and I called it One Door because there was one door in the Rodin Museum that was particularly moving to me. But when I was putting that collection, that order collection together, I decided to reshape One Door into like a concise hopefully a concise composition, and retitled it the Hotel Biron. Here it is. Once again, Paul Brantley.
marvelous, very enchanting and haunting. Some really uh, beautiful melodic fragments for me. I can still hear it floating in my head. And before getting into maybe a few other things, I wanted you to maybe help me understand what you mean, historically speaking, about the Moorish origins of the Saraband. I'm not familiar with that, and, and just wondering how that dance form and rhythm... That statement of mine is a little bit controversial, but some of us believe that all these Baroque dances, that Bach and all those guys, and Couperin, that they composed to, they're all from different countries and different cultures. And so we know that the Saraband is Spanish. And so a lot of people, though, think that indeed it's not only Spanish, but Moorish Spanish. And, you know, like the characteristic thing of a Sarabond is that it has this kind of slow waltz triple feel, but it emphasizes the second beat somehow, right? And that they would like step into that. But I wasn't interested in writing a Saraband. The Moorish quality that I'm imagining, I'm not being musicologically correct, I'm being expressive. The Moorish quality, to me, suggested, instead of just being one, two, three, and one, two, which is very even and Western, the Moorish quality suggested more of a kind of asymmetrical, uneven numbers of beats and inner beats. I'm drawn to that kind of thing. To me, the world is asymmetrical and truly broke, misshapen. And so I like to follow those contours. And I would like to think that it's suggestive for those who know and love Sarbans, you know, that, that it's suggestive of that dance, but that it bends time and kind of takes you on a, on a different journey. You know, and it's like you touch one thing and everything else is affected, and so it affects the harmony. So it's like quasi-baroque harmonically, but then it's much more expansive than that. And it goes on its own little journey and so, you know, why is that relevant? Because it's like the Hotel Biron, the Rodin Museum, is this old 17th century Baroque house. So I'm like vibing off of all of that. Well, it's really fantastic to have someone who's so accomplished instrumentally and a composer. And I'm just wondering what went into taking something that you were accustomed to playing in an extemporaneous fashion and to making it, as you put it, into something more concrete and concise and through composed what compromises did you have to make, if any? It's a really good question. You know, it's almost like all those years of performing it in its kind of open-ended way. It's not that the notes were improvised. It's more the form was improvised. You know, again, I could go through that door, or I could go through another door. Or if I go through that door, I could take a right turn, or I could take a left turn. That was kind of like the conceit at the time of composing it. I don't completely recall, but it's, it's almost as if the more that I performed it, the more that it tended to want to settle in one particular direction. You know, one was more effective than the other. You know, you kind of feel that from an audience. So I think that's what happened more than anything. It kind of settled into its own form. One thing I want to, don't want to be remiss in um, asking is where can listeners go to follow your projects 
the pieces that we've heard today, any of the compositions you've written? The most immediate place to listen is my SoundCloud page. Then it also gives contact information there. And then I also have, you know, the quote-unquote band page on Facebook. One casualty of these times is that my personal website went away and it hasn't been resurrected yet. But I'm easily contacted by Paul Brantley SoundCloud. You're reachable virtually, and also we wanted to bring people something from your larger compositions. We're going to get a chance to listen to one of your multi-instrument compositions, Ducombs, as it was performed by Music of the Spheres. Why did you select that work? Well, that was a wonderful commission. There's this extraordinary ensemble in the Bay Area called Music of the Spheres. There was also a Music of the Spheres here in New York, a completely different group. So the Bay Area one is this early music group, and it's a little bit flexible ensemble, but for this it was Baroque violin and Baroque cello and harpsichord. And so they asked if I would write a piece. You know, they're normally used to playing just 17th and 18th century music. And so they're such wonderful artists that they're wanting to refresh the possibilities of what can be done with those old instruments. And that wasn't my first time composing for older instruments. And and I've done a fair amount of Baroque cello playing myself. So I guess I was a pretty natural person for them to ask. And so this is just the first of a two-movement piece. The whole piece I call Dux Comes, which is leader-follower, and to me is kind of suggestive of a yin-yang metaphor in a way. You know, I've, I've received a lot of performances, mostly by ensembles that play everything, relatively few by quote-unquote new music ensembles. I mention all of this because then suddenly there's this ensemble that they almost exclusively play baroque music and it's just like literally one of the best performances i've ever received they brought such commitment to it and also you know rhythm is almost everything to me and there's just like they understand kind of akin to what pop and jazz musicians talk about groove you know not just like a complicated rhythm that goes here and there but how rhythms lock into each other and rub up against each other and spin out of each other. And, you know, Baroque musicians, that's their bread and butter. They, like, got my spin of that in really one of the most meaningful ways I've experienced. And so um, and so this is a beautiful, actually, studio recording that we made of the whole thing. But this is just the first movement. Well, let's listen to it. This is Paul Brantley's composition, Du Combs, performed by Music of the Spheres. Thank you. 
Michael, that was absolutely wonderful. We'll make sure to put links up to your functioning web pages on our In What Artworks on the Air website. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, um, it's really been my great pleasure. This is literally the first time I've performed, except for playing a, a Yom Kippur service about a month ago for three minutes. And um, <laughs> so this is literally my first performance in about nine, ten months. So that's very meaningful. And it's wonderful what you guys are doing, bringing attention to all these extraordinary artists on this end of the island. So thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you, Paul, for joining Jonathan and I on this live and local edition of Inwood Artworks On Air, where we meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes who make their home here in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast and Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Thank you to our series, Atonement Lutheran Church, for hosting us, and to Hidesites.com for promotional support. Uh, we also want to make sure you follow us on Inwood Artworks to keep us up to keep up with all we do, including the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, Pop of Art Galleries, Live Performances, and so much more. You can support On Air and all our programming by making a tax-free donation at inwoodartworks.nyc/donate. Inwood Artworks On Air is made possible with funding from the NYC and Company Foundation with support from Manhattan Borough President Gail A. Brewer and the Niska Electronic Media and Film Grant Program in partnership with Wave Farm Media Arts Assistance Fund and the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Thank you again for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims. I'm Jonathan Bell. For Inwood Artworks On Air. 